Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 14. I want to start just by reading this. Uh, just this passage, and then I'll do a little bit of um, introduction. So, Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, as I have said in the past, there are some things that are difficult to understand in Paul's writings. And there are some things that are difficult in this passage, but there are also some things that are very easy, very simple in this passage. And so what I want to try to do is I want to try to make the simple so clear that nobody can miss it, and hopefully bring the complicated up to the level that some of us get it. It's a a high bar, I know. The Apostle Paul here uses a lot of uh, what we would call Christianese. Okay? There's a reason it's called Christianese. It's because we use these words as Christians and then they aren't used by anybody else. And then the meaning just kind of becomes this amorphous spiritual thing. And that's all it means to us. So so we're reading this passage and we hear spirituality, 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 Christianese, Christianese, spirituality, God, Jesus, spirituality. I, I read it. Now, these were... And so the real meaning is what I want us to get. And some of the things are easy, some of them are hard, but regardless, you ought to be seeking to grow in knowledge and understanding of what these words mean. 
God's purpose, as revealed in this passage, is to redeem his own possession so that he is glorified. To redeem his possession so that he is glorified. We see that in verse 14. That last verse that we read. With a, review, with a view, the very end, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so with a view means that the purpose is being revealed, what the goal is, all right? It's to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, there are a few places in Scripture where if you read uh, if you read two different translations uh, of a verse, you'll find that they are almost opposite in how they're translated. They the the who is who is getting whose possession we're talking about. And this is one of those places, okay, where if you read the ESV, it's going to sound very different, all right? But there is a redemption happening. And this passage as a whole makes that clear. And it makes it clear who is being redeemed and that it is God's own possession, just in case you read it in the ESV, but I, but I want to be clear that this whole passage does reveal to us and show us what God's purpose is. From the beginning to the end of the passage. Verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. And so redeeming and redemption these things are central to this passage. And this, this is one of those Christianese words that just, it, it's very easy for the, the word to just become a word. All right? God's purpose, though, is to redeem. And in verse 9, what we see is that this is the mystery of his will, which he made known to us. So again, if he has made known to us this great mystery of his will, of his, of his will being what he desires, right? And of course, anything that God desires to do, he can do. And if he desires to redeem his possession, to redeem his people for himself, he is able to accomplish it. And in fact, he has. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is what it continues on to point out to us. Okay? We have redemption through his blood. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what does redemption mean? Any of you kids think you know what it means to redeem? Do you ever, aside from as a Christian word, use the word redeem? Has any, when is the last time anybody saw the word redeem being used? Yeah. 
Yes, if you screw up in a basketball game and then you go out and you play extra hard and try to do something amazing in order to redeem yourself. So there are some places where we still use the word. We also use it for, well, I don't know, no. It's been too long. I think we stopped getting coupons, didn't we? Gift certificates, okay, there we go. You can redeem your gift certificate, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I saw this word yesterday in the Apple App Store that I could redeem a gift card. Okay. So this word isn't completely gone from our vocabulary, right? But um, now that I've gone off on the rabbit trail of gift cards, and the better translation was given here at the beginning, the sports analogy, okay? You want to redeem yourself when you have done a bad job in something, right? It might have been that the last cheesecake cracked and cracked and cracked again. and You want to try again to see if you can redeem yourself, right? Or it might have been that it was on the basketball court or it might have been um, simply that Last year, you forgot your anniversary, and so this year, you want to not just remember, but do something especially good and delightful so that you can redeem yourself, right? Okay, so this, all of these show us something at the root of the meaning of that word redeem. And so to redeem is to take care of a problem. That's how, that's how it's being used here in, in the Bible. That there, is, that there is something, the matter, that needs to be taken care of. Okay? But it's, but it's more than that. All of the examples I gave were of us redeeming ourselves, Right? But the problem that we face that's being discussed in this passage is something that we can't take care of ourselves. We're unable to redeem ourselves. We need God to redeem us. God is the only one who has the solution to this problem. Now, if you look through the whole of Scripture, you'll see this theme of redemption throughout the Old and the New Testaments, okay? And so in the Old Testament, you have these pictures revealed to the Jews and then to us through the scripture of the kinsman redeemer, okay? You guys ever read that term, kinsman redeemer? Uh, so the kinsman redeemer is uh, Old Testament picture that shows us our need and gives us a picture of the way that God saves, God redeems, God pulls us out of the helpless situation that we are in, okay? So what's the most famous kinsman redeemer? Any of you kids know the stories of of any kinsman redeemers? Boaz, yes, Boaz and 
Who is, he's the kinsman redeemer. Who is he redeeming? Ruth, that's right. Okay, so that story, which I don't have time to go into a lot, okay, (laughs) because you want to end in less time than we ended last time I preached. This is a goal. All right. The kinsman redeemer, Boaz, takes Ruth out of her helpless situation and turns her helpless situation into one where she is no longer in desperation. Right? And so you just see redemption of her out of poverty, out of widowhood, out of not having a people, okay, to marriage, having a people, and having all that she needs. It's a beautiful story. It's a romantic story. Uh, I think it flies in the face of a lot of evangelical sensibilities too, but we'll leave that to the side as well. But redemption is something that God shows little pictures of throughout the Old Testament. And as that redemption begins to be seen, begins to be known, begins to be understood, all right, what happens is we're working our way towards something specific, which is the Redeemer in the fullness of time. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's just saying, look, you are helpless apart from Christ. There is no hope for you apart from Christ. Your redemption is only from Christ. And what do you need to be redeemed from? Something much worse even than Ruth was facing You need to be redeemed from the wrath that your sins deserve. Redeemed as a salvation from the wrath of the Holy One of Israel. This is the redemption. And this is is the simple in this passage. Okay? The simple good news that the Apostle Paul is reminding us of. And and again, you know, just for the sake of reminder, the Christian needs for good news is gospel, right? Gospel means good news. And this is what the Apostle Paul is giving us. And it has been revealed slowly in bits and pieces, but it wasn't until the coming of Christ that the fullness of time had arrived. It was a mystery of his will prior to that. His will existed. The plan was there. It was sure to happen. But then... He made it known to us. The gospel. This good news. And how did he make it known to us? By sending his son in the fullness of time. 
So let's talk about uh, the fullness of time. Okay? Because that's what it says in verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Okay, now this is a little bit more complicated than the basics of the fact that you need to believe in Jesus Christ and that his blood was shed so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be redeemed. And that's, that's pretty simple. You know you're a sinner. You know you can't justify or redeem yourself. There's no going out and working extra hard and making up for it. And so the only chance you have for redemption is something outside yourself. It has to be done for you, on behalf of you. And Jesus did that through his death on the cross. That's the simple part. But he did it when the fullness of time had come. We read that phrase, and again, multiple of the Apostle Paul's letters. We read it here, with view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. So, the administration means the making it happen, okay? Verse 8 says, In all wisdom and insight. So God was very wise with his plan, okay? He made it known to us, this mystery of his will which is that, they, that he was going to redeem through his own son, okay? According to his kind intention. And boy, is it kind for him to choose to redeem us, right? The kind intention which he purposed in him. Now, as we're getting, we're, we're digging we're digging a little bit deeper, okay? Which he purchased in him, in whom? In, in Christ, okay? With a view to, so that's that phrase again that we've already seen later on, but you know, in verse 14. With a view to means he's trying to show us why, right? What, what, what's going on? With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on earth. Okay, so, what is Paul getting at when he talks about the administration suitable to the fullness of the times? Well, let me give an example that might help show just at the simplest level, what he's talking about. Have any of you ever been to a surprise birthday party before? Ready? Okay. All right, if you've been to a surprise birthday party, you know that there is an appropriate time to reveal the surprise and an inappropriate time to revealing the surprise and that the whole goal is to have it happen at the appropriate time. And it, and it happens that the appropriate time to reveal the surprise to the, to the person who's generally birthday, right? Or maybe some other sort of celebration. But, you know, it, if it's my birthday, 
and my family's going to throw a surprise party for me, their whole goal is that I don't know about it until I walk in the door and the surprise comes, right? That moment is the fullness of time, right? It's arrived. And, and you wouldn't, just like you don't want it to be revealed before that, You wouldn't want me to walk in and everybody just to not surprise me, right? You wouldn't want to wait until after the fullness of time. That is the time. It's the perfect time. It's the only time. The fullness of the time has arrived. Now, that's, that's what this is talking about. And again, I said in the simplest terms, because there were, there were some hints given in the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer being a picture that this is coming, right? Um, but maybe it's uh, maybe it's like if if uh, there was an another surprise to everybody at the surprise party. Hey. Because the surprise, and then we got you a car, and everyone's jaw drops. Right? Like, oh, wow, he's getting a car. Cool. What's going on there? It's a shock to everybody, but the Jews should have known that this was coming. If they had been paying attention, the pictures wouldn't have, they would have been like, oh, that's why there were, that's why there were, uh, and you've got all these hints, right? You start to see it all through the Old Testament, just like you could, you could see the, uh, the decorations pointing at the, pointing at the fact that a car was coming. Oh, that's the car. I get it. The car. Yeah. Should have seen that coming. But it was not time to fully reveal it yet. Until it was time. Open the garage door. There it is. Why wasn't it the right time yet? We could spend a long time discussing what was, what was missing, but here's what it comes down to. Christ hadn't come yet. When he arrives, it is the fullness of time. Now you can then say, yeah, but why didn't he come sooner? Right? And you can, you, again, that's where we could spend a lot of time talking about what the, what the build-up was that God was waiting for. And there's, you, you, you'll hear people talking about, uh, you know, the, the Roman road system needed to be developed for God to spread the gospel after Christ's coming. And so he was waiting for the Romans to build their roads. Well, I mean, that, it was part of the fullness of time, right? But 
it's, it's that God was fulfilling his promises. It's that he was fulfilling his word. It's not that he was dependent on anything that the Romans were going to do, right? It's that he had said there were going to be kingdoms. And you read the prophecies, and the Romans are prophesied. So we know it's not coming until after that, right? But the fullness of time arrives when Christ arrives. The fullness of time comes and and God sends his son. Now, I've been skirting around this issue a little bit. I've been talking about the Redeemer and, and the work of redemption being what Paul is talking about here. But if, you, but if you look a little bit closer, you'll see that part of what he's talking about, even though he doesn't mention it specifically is the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? Because the Ephesian church is a Gentile church. And so, part of what the Jews should have known is that the Gentiles were going to be brought in. It's not just that a Redeemer was coming. They knew that. But what they, but that shock that, oh, there's a car, is the fact that the Gentiles are going to be brought into the kingdom. The Gentiles are going to be redeemed. And again, they should have been able to see it. You read it in the Old Testament, you know, there's all these these clues throughout that it's not just for the people of God, but that the people of God are going to be coming in from, streaming in from the nations. And so, the Ephesians have the same redemption that the Jews, the, peop, the chosen people of God, have been waiting for. They knew about the party. The Jews knew about the party, right? They just didn't know there was going to be a car at the party. The, the Jews knew that the Redeemer was coming. They, did, they just had missed the fact that the Gentiles were going to be at the party too. And it is a party. It is a celebration. Paul is, Paul is wanting us to, to shout with joy, to praise God, to respond with great delight in what he has done. And what <clears throat> is it <clears throat> that he has done? He has redeemed. From every tribe and tongue and nation. He has redeemed a possession for himself. We are his. Now, there's, there's two ways of responding to that. You can be like, great. I'm God's. I couldn't ask for anything better than to be a slave of God. My body is his. My mind is his. My brain is his. I'm all his. And he can use me for whatever he wants. Because he has made me his possession. He has redeemed me. Or you can hear that you're God's. And you'd be like, eh, I don't know if I want to be God's. He might have 
he might have bad, nasty, hard work for me to do. I don't know if I want to be God's possession. I don't want to be possessed by anybody. I am my own. I do what I want. In which case, you are your own and you are not God's. You have to choose whether you are your own or whether you are God's. And if you are your own, you will not be redeemed from your sin, but you will be a slave to yourself and to the, to the sin that is within you. And it's a terrible, terrible slavery. Or you can be redeemed. And God's possession. And it's glorious to be his possession. Because the choice is hell, in all of its metaphorical, metaphysical senses that we think of things being hell on earth, right? And in its most literal sense of the judgment and wrath of God being poured out for eternity, hell or being plucked out and redeemed by God and then just being His in His hand for Him to do whatever He wants with us. You couldn't ask for anything better than to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that's how we are redeemed. The fullness of time came. God sent his son. And then what? He didn't be like, eh, you know, well, I think I'll come back. I don't think I'm really ready for this surprise party yet. No, you can't wait until after the time either, right? He finished the work at the appropriate time. He went to the cross, though it was terrible. That was the cost of our redemption. That Christ bore the wrath of the Father on our behalf for our sins. Therefore, we have redemption. If he had not done that on the cross, if he had not shed his blood and had his body broken for us, there would be no redemption. There would be no hope. There would be no fullness of time. So that's how we are redeemed. Christ took the wrath of God all on himself so that we could be transferred from darkness to light. From hell and death to life and heaven. That was the redemption. But why did he do it? It was his will. That's what we see in verse 9 and 11. His will. 
He wanted to. He wanted to save nasty sinners. But why did he want to? Why did he want to? Well, this gets deep into the character of God. Okay? But God is love. God is love. And that's why he wanted to. And so what, did it, what does it say? He lavished his grace on us. His grace is poured out lavishly. Isn't that remarkable? Makes it very clear that it's not something that we deserved. Makes it very clear that there was no, uh, no reason that we could have in ourselves, if it's grace, right? And then, you just see that it's, it's lavish. And how can you, how can you des- describe it any other way than lavish? When we know what we deserve, we know what we're like apart from Him, apart from that redeeming blood... And we think, that's amazing grace. That's lavish grace. What a gift to us. The blood of Christ poured out on the ground in his death just so that we can be redeemed. This is grace lavished on us. That's verse 8. Our redemption shows His grace being lavished on us. So, I ask the question, why are we redeemed? And here's the answer. It's so that God could be lavish with His grace. Now that's a little bit weird, but, but let me just, it's, I'm going to repeat it. Why are we redeemed? It's so that God could be lavish with his grace. Now, why do I say it's so that he could be lavish with his grace? Well, because it is that grace that results in the praise of His glory. So we've got the the ultimate goal that we started with, right? So that He is glorified. Our redemption is so that He is glorified, but you get this intervening, intermediate step of how, okay, how does Him redeeming us result in the praise of His glory? And the answer is 
Because his redemption is the way that he demonstrates his lavish grace. He pours out this lavish grace on us. And what? His possession responds with praise. His church responds by glorifying him. And then what? His praise abounds. Right? And so we keep singing and singing and singing and praying and praying and praising and thanking Him just for that one thing. That one thing that is the only thing that mattered. Our redemption. Where His grace was lavishly poured out. And we see the character of God in that. We see His love in that. We see His mercy in that. And you know what else we see in that? We see His hatred of sin in that. Don't we? You see that He poured His wrath out on His Son as His Son shed His blood. You see the cost of our sins. And so you see the, the hatred of God for sin. You see the incompatibility of sin and sinners being in His presence. Because we can't come into His presence apart from having been redeemed. Having had that blood shed for us. We can't get into the Holy of Holies. There's a veil in our way until the blood is shed and the veil is torn in two and the way into God's presence is open for us. The fullness of time has come. It's ripped apart. And now we enter into His glorious presence. Why? Because we've been redeemed. Because His blood was shed so that we might be righteous. Because only the righteous can enter into God's presence. And so we see God's holiness displayed in our redemption. We see His love displayed in our redemption. We see His grace displayed in our redemption. We see His hatred of sin in our redemption. All of these things, you, you begin to see the fullness of the character of God and you think, what can I do but worship? What can I do but fall down at His feet and praise His glorious name? And this is what Paul is, is calling us to. What's the result of all that work that God did through Christ and through our redemption? The result is going to be something that's still in the future. The NASB puts it, the summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up of all things in Christ. Now, if you've done any math, you've done summing. Sum is addition, okay? And so the summing up of all things in Christ is when you take all the numbers 
the end of the game, and you add them up, and you see who won, right? You got five players, and you sum the whole column. You played 16 rounds, and you got to add every number together. And at the end, you find out who won, right? And at the end of this game, you know who won? Jesus. Jesus won. The summing up of all things in him is not just adding some numbers, right? <laughs> but it's the completion. It is the, it is the uniting of all things together in him. And, and this, this summing up is necessary because we need that redemption, right? But we also know that in spite of that redemption, the work is not complete. Because everything is at odds with everything else right now. Nothing adds up. Lions and lambs, they can't get together until the work is complete, right? But when everything is summed up in Christ, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. And that is completion, isn't it? There's something that totally different that has happened at that point. And it's not just the lion and the lamb. That's meant to show how at odds everything is. How impossible the summing up really is that's going to be completed. But what is it? Lions and lambs, Jews and Gentiles, man and the rest of creation, right? Heaven and earth, God and man. They're all at odds. They're all impossibly separated. The, the idea of being able to bring them back together is impossible. And yet, there will be a new heavens and a new earth and the lion will lie down with the lamb. The summing up of all things in Christ is describing that that's just the, do you want to say the Christianese for that whole thing? And we read this also in Romans, where the Apostle Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, now, hold on to that in hope for a second because we're going to come back to our passage. We're going to see the same theme. All right? In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of what? Does anybody know? Of the children of God. That's weird. The glory of the children of God. 
But what it shows is that the freedom that we have as Christians, we have been united with Christ and have this glorious thing going on that the rest of creation, he continues on to say, what? The rest of creation groans waiting for the, for the fullness of that redemption to be completed. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly. So we, even though we are further than the rest of creation, we also still just have the first little bits of this. Waiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now, I, I told you to hold on to that theme of hope for a minute. And, and it sounds like Paul just kind of got distracted at that point in this, in this text. He starts talking about hope and waiting and what, where is he going? Well, the, the thing is, the need for the fullness of the unity that we will have in Christ is huge. And we don't have it yet. Even Christians are at odds with one another still. Right? And that's terrible. The lion and the lamb are not yet united in a new creation. And and we're waiting eagerly for that. And, And most of all, we see that sin still remains in us. And we can't wait until it's done. The summing up of all things in Christ. The completion of the work. And what Paul is talking about in Romans there is that you have to have hope that that's still coming. Because you don't have it yet. But here's what he says in Ephesians. If after hearing the gospel message you believed then you were sealed in him, verse 13. You were sealed in him. It is guaranteed. Just like an inheritance is guaranteed. It's another word that he uses here, right? And the Holy Spirit is the pledge of that inheritance, verse 14. So God has said, I am going to sum up all things in Christ, and we have pictures of that throughout Scripture again, the lion and the lamb being one of them, all right? I'm going to sum up all things and all people. It's going to be completed. But what? But it hasn't happened yet. And so in the meantime, here is my Holy Spirit. 
Now, I know the temptation right here is we want the Holy Spirit to be as obvious as speaking in tongues, fire above our heads, a whirlwind, right? And healing. That would be what many of us would find preferable to what we feel like we have, right? If, if this is supposed to be the guarantee, the pledge, it's supposed to give us comfort, it's supposed to give us assurance, it's supposed to make us have hope until that time comes, the summing up, right? Then wouldn't it be nice if it was just, like, obvious? Like, as obvious as whether you got baptized or not? Hey, you got baptized? You got it. You got the Holy Spirit. Or, hey, you know what? All you got to do is learn to speak in tongues, and you got the Holy Spirit. And it's obvious you got the Holy Spirit, because look, you're talking in tongues. You see, now, those were signs of the the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong, okay? But here's where we, we we need to go. If we don't have those signs, is there any comfort for us in the Holy Spirit being given as a pledge of this inheritance? Do we have hope apart from speaking in tongues? Now, I... I hope you do, but what I'm here to tell you is you need to have hope, you can have hope, in spite of it being very different today than it was right at that beginning time with the, with the apostles, okay? We are waiting for what we do not see, is what Paul said. Our hope, that whole passage I read from Romans, right? We hope for what we do not see. With perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. We groan in waiting for what has been promised. Even the first fruits of the Spirit are just the beginning. But the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in God's possession. Us, His people. How do I know? Well, you might want me to assume that I'm going to say and want me to say, well, look inside yourself and see if you see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And I would say, no, stop, wait a minute. Look around and see whether you see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in this world. You look around right now in this room and I tell you, you will see evidence that the Holy Spirit has been at work. The fact that his possession remains, just as he said it would, the church being the pillar and foundation of the truth, is proof that the Holy Spirit has been given to the church as a pledge. So if you're struggling on the individual level, you can look at it on the corporate level because both the corporate and the individual are addressed here. Corporately, we are the possession of God as a whole body, as a whole group of people, okay? Individually, we respond to the praise of His glory, of His grace. And of course, corporately as well. But you, you see, you, 
you can look to both as evidence. If you're, if you're doubting the pledge, look around you. Yes, and look in you. And now let me talk about in you. The Holy Spirit is indeed at work in us, even more miraculously than tongues. If we hate our sin, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. You know what else is evidence? Hating that we don't hate our sin enough. That, that's actually evidence. God has changed our hearts. You can't hate your sin unless God has changed your heart. You can't hate that you don't hate your sin enough unless God has changed your heart to not want to love your sin. This is, the, this is what Paul talks about also in Romans when he's saying, I do what I don't want to do. My, I fight with myself, right? The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and I do the very thing I don't want to do. And you say, well, I, on the one hand, I did actually want to do it. Well, Paul knows that, and God knows that, and you know that, we know that. So what's he talking about when he says, I do the very thing I don't want to do? He's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit has changed your heart. So you have the pledge of the inheritance. The inheritance comes at the summing up of all things in Christ. The fullness of the gathering in of all the people. His whole possession being completed in all of creation being remade and new. And no more tears and sorrows and no more sin. It's all summed up in Christ. The Jews together with the Gentiles. God together with man. And we have the Holy Spirit to show us it is surely coming. So don't despair, but have hope. If God's will is to redeem he will redeem. He will redeem a possession for himself. He will accomplish it. And all who put their hope in his son will receive forgiveness of their sins. That's his promise. Miracle of miracles. And he will give you his Holy Spirit. And you will hate your sin. 